Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast episode contains references to suicide that may be disturbing to some listeners. It's 9.40 on the night of the 19th of February, 1939, and husband and wife Raymond and Elizabeth White are driving along a country road in northeastern Victoria. They've had a pleasant late summer day. After picnicking with the Corbett family at Gingelic on the New South Wales side of the Murray River, Raymond and Elizabeth have spent two more hours at the home of these friends. Now they're making the short drive back to their farm property, The Pines. Raymond's at the wheel of their old touring car, which in top gear is chugging along at about 30 miles per hour. They pass through the little town of Walwa and are about a mile from The Pines when he sees sheep on the side of the road. Thinking these stupid creatures are about to run into his path, he swerves left. But... When he tries to steer right again, the car doesn't respond. What's wrong? Elizabeth asks. There's no time to answer before the car's off the road and out of control on the gravel shoulder. Raymond hits the brakes, but it's too late and they hit a bump. As the door flies open, he's flung onto the road and the car plunges down a steep embankment. For a moment, everything goes blank for Raymond. Next thing he knows, he's standing at the top of a deep ditch beside the road. Ten feet below him, his vehicle. It's on its roof. And Elizabeth is nowhere to be seen. But there are flames inside the car. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. Eighty years ago, Adolf Hitler ordering the invasion of Czechoslovakia dominated the front pages of Australian newspapers. 
but the relentless march towards another world war competed for column inches with the tragic mystery unfolding in country Victoria. This was a story that seemed ripped from, and maybe even inspired by, the lurid pages of a detective novel. There was the man with the murky past, the two sisters who perished suddenly, the crucial evidence that was allowed to be destroyed, the corpse that had to be exhumed, and the coroner with an incredible conflict of interest. It could have been written by Agatha Christie or Arthur Conan Doyle. Even more sensationally, police theorised that solving this case might also solve Australia's most famous unsolved murder, that of the Pyjama Girl. Twenty years before his car went off that road, Raymond Cyril White stepped off a ship in Melbourne. In the wake of personal grief and the Great War, he didn't have much in this world. But Australia promised a fresh start, a new life. Raymond was born in 1895 in Glencoe, a remote town in South Africa. He was an only child and his parents, Matthew and Mary, both died when he was still young. In 1914, when the Great War broke out, he served in the Cape Mounted Rifles with his unit fighting in German East Africa. After the armistice, Raymond laboured for a farmer in Ladysmith. Then, in 1919, he joined a ship's crew and worked his way to Melbourne. That was the year of the Spanish flu, but while that deadly epidemic would kill many quickly and then die down, Australian farmers faced a plague that was seemingly never-ending and all-consuming. Rabbits. A man who could capture and kill these pests would always be in work, and so Raymond bought a cart and some traps and humped his swag north. He plied his trade first across the Murray River in southwestern New South Wales. Then it was a big station in northeastern Victoria where he worked for about four years. After that, he was employed on a few other properties in the region. In 1925, the life of this swaggy took an unexpected turn when, at a sports meeting in the small town of Walwa, Raymond White met Elizabeth and Ellen Brennan. These sisters came from a pioneering family that had settled in the district half a century earlier, establishing themselves at Guy's Forest on a property they called The Pines. Comprising nearly a thousand acres, it was a beautiful place, named for the trees that lined the driveway with picturesque views that called to mind the English countryside. On their 350 acres of farmland, the Brennans ran dairy cattle and sheep. They also grew wheat and, in their pretty gardens, raised all sorts of fruits and vegetables. While their other siblings married and moved away, Elizabeth and Ellen Brennan continued to live at the Pines. And, after their parents died, these spinster sisters had inherited the property. Now they wanted 30-year-old Raymond to help keep rabbits under control. Their new employee was quite handsome. Five foot six, blue eyes, black hair, a dark complexion. And it wasn't long before the professional and the personal blurred 
when Raymond supposedly took a romantic interest in Ellen. She was 40, 10 years older than him, and an outdoors woman fond of hunting, who was a crack shot with her single-bore shotgun. Ellen wasn't interested in Raymond, so he turned his attentions to the stout and bespectacled 44-year-old Elizabeth. They had very different backgrounds. Raymond, the itinerant immigrant war veteran, and Elizabeth, the landed daughter of pioneers. They also had different temperaments. He had few friends, preferring instead the company of detectives and villains that he found in the crime novels he was reported to read every night. Where Raymond was reclusive, Elizabeth was a pillar of the community, well-liked, active in local events and a staunch churchgoer. Despite their differences, Raymond and Elizabeth got married on Armistice Day, November the 11th, 1925, and he moved into the Pines, which they shared with Ellen. The married couple seemed happy enough, though locals thought him odd and felt sure that she wore the pants in the relationship. A couple of years into their marriage, Raymond and Elizabeth had the Pines to themselves for a while when Ellen went to live with a relative in rural Queensland. One report said it was because she was unhappy with her sister's choice of husband, but other reports said the trio were on excellent terms at all times. In any case, Ellen soon returned to the Pines, and that was when the sisters redrew their wills so that in the event of either of them dying, ownership of the farm would go to the other. On Anzac Day 1928, Raymond and Ellen met out the front of the homestead. She had her shotgun, he had his rabbit traps, and as they talked and walked across the property, a pair of ducks flew overhead and landed on a pond about a hundred yards away. Raising the hammer on her gun, Ellen said she was going to go get them. She ran along an embankment towards the pond. Closing in on her quarry, Ellen stumbled and tumbled down an eight-foot ditch. A second after she disappeared from view, Raymond heard a single gunshot. Racing to where Ellen had fallen, he saw her sprawled at the bottom of the embankment. She had a terrible gunshot wound to the back of her head. There was nothing Raymond could do. The tragedy shocked the community and short articles about the stumbling death of this lady duck shooter appeared all over Australia. An inquest was held the next day. No medical evidence was called and a verdict of accidental death was returned. As per her sister's will, Elizabeth was now the sole owner of The Pines. Just two years later, tragedy threatened again when the homestead burned down. The cause of the blaze wasn't determined and it was fortunate that no one was hurt. What was also lucky was that Raymond and Elizabeth had insured the old farmhouse for £1,400 and soon after used this payout to build a fine new seven-room brick and timber house. For the rest of the decade, the couple seemed to live happily in this comfortable abode, which, given that Australia faced the Great Depression during these years, was far from the experience of many people. 
Elizabeth tended to home duties and Raymond worked on the land, did maintenance jobs and, by night, read his crime novels. Now Raymond had to be like one of the heroes in those stories by saving Elizabeth from their car, flipped on its roof and on fire at the bottom of a deep ditch. He scrambled down and went to the front of the vehicle, hoping that his wife had also been thrown clear. She hadn't. Elizabeth was trapped in the car. Lizzie, Lizzie, he called. The door beside her was hanging on a hinge and Raymond wrenched it free. His wife was jammed in the wreckage, surrounded by things they'd had with them at their picnic. He pulled out clothing, a towel and a tablecloth so he had a better chance of grabbing her. To his horror, Elizabeth appeared dead. But Raymond wasn't giving up. He managed to pull her arm free, but now saw she was caught up in a strap that held the car's folding passenger seat in place. He tried to undo it, but he couldn't. Help, help, Raymond screamed and kept on screaming. The fire, which had started in the engine under the bonnet, was now blazing. Raymond pulled out a pocket knife and slashed at the strap, but still couldn't get Elizabeth out. Help arrived in the form of the Hunt brothers, who lived opposite where the car had gone off the road. They'd heard the crash and Raymond's cries for help and tried to help him pull Elizabeth free. But it was hopeless, with the fire quickly engulfing the car. If they stayed where they were, they might be killed if the petrol tank exploded. Overwhelmed, Raymond collapsed in a faint and the Hunt brothers had to drag him clear. Coming to, he saw flames all around Elizabeth. Desperate, he tried to rush back to her, but the Hunt brothers held him as the fire consumed his wife. The Hunt brothers took Raymond to the Walwa Bush Hospital. He was admitted with crisscross cuts on his chest, a cut in his left forearm, a slight cut in his right leg, a large bruise on his chest and another on his shoulder. Most of these injuries, he said, had been inflicted not when he'd been thrown from the car, but when he'd been trying to pull and cut his wife free. Meanwhile, back at the wreck site, a mounted police constable arrived, inspected the scene where the car was apparently still burning, and then left it unguarded as he went to the hospital to take Raymond's statement. Elizabeth's body, which was reduced to but a few bones, remained in the wreck until the next morning. The tragedy was reported across Australia in single-paragraph news articles, much as Ellen's sudden death by accidental shotgun blast had been a decade earlier. Car burns after smash. Woman passenger dies in flames, read the headline of a small article in The Age on the 21st of February. The day after Elizabeth's terrible death, Walworth's deputy coroner, Mr Hugh McCarg, ordered an autopsy. The autopsy doctor said the body was so badly damaged it wasn't possible to determine whether Elizabeth's death had been caused by the car wreck or by the subsequent fire. Yet there needed to be an inquest, which Deputy Coroner McHarg ordered held in two weeks so the police had time to investigate. Elizabeth was buried, though Raymond, 
who was still in hospital, missed his wife's funeral. When Melbourne detectives arrived in Walwa, they interviewed Raymond about the accident and he told them his story, from leaving the picnic and swerving to avoid the sheep, to trying to free his wife and being pulled clear by the Hunt brothers. Asking around about Raymond, the police learned that locals thought he was a bit of a shady character. Everyone knew him as Richard or Dick White, not as Raymond. That he kept to himself so much also marked him as strange. So did him reading detective stories all the time, especially as, given half a chance, he'd talk for hours about these fictional criminal cases. Raymond, Richard, Dick, whatever you called him, even carried a pistol in his pocket, supposedly against the possibility of attack by villains like the ones he was always reading about. Then, inevitably, there were dark rumours that Ellen Brennan's shooting death hadn't been an accident. The police could see why locals were wary of him, but they also had to know that in small communities like Walwa, people could still be regarded as outsiders even after they'd lived there for 20 years. Raymond Richard Dick. A man calling himself by a different first name, well, that wasn't that unusual. Detective novels? Reading about crime was itself no crime. A dead sister-in-law? Tragedies like that often led to theories of foul play. But as the police looked at the physical evidence and heard witness accounts about the car crash, they began to wonder whether locals were right to feel uneasy about this man. The police found tyre tracks at the crash site, but no skid marks. Raymond's garage mechanic told them that the car's brakes and steering had been in fine working order. The Hunt brothers said they'd found Raymond not by the car as he'd said, but on the embankment staggering around and calling for help. Then when the brothers were about to try to turn the car over in a bid to free Elizabeth, Raymond had collapsed in a faint and gone into hysterics. Restraining him had cost them valuable seconds during which the flames engulfed the car's interior. A sports coat and a knife belonging to Raymond had been found near the car. Both were stained with human blood. Then there was the car itself, which was only partially burnt. The bodywork was only scorched and the tyres were intact. The blaze that had been intense enough to all but cremate Elizabeth had also only been concentrated on the seats. And the petrol tank hadn't even been ruptured. It still contained fuel, and the petrol cap was still in place. When the police went to the Walwa Bush Hospital, the doctor who treated Raymond told them he believed his wounds were self-inflicted. He also said Raymond didn't have any gravel rash, as you'd expect of a man flung from a moving vehicle, and that on admission he'd seemed calm and collected despite the horror he'd just experienced. A nurse said it didn't seem possible that Raymond should have cuts on his chest and leg without his singlet and trousers 
being in any way ripped or torn. When the police went back to Raymond to examine the clothes he'd been wearing on the night of the crash, they couldn't because, well, he'd burned them, along with some of his wife's clothes. Why? He told the police they were torn and bloodstained and reminders of that terrible night. Raymond White gave police a long handwritten statement. He described his South African upbringing, his work history in Australia, the 15 years he'd spent with the deceased Brennan sisters, his version of the accident, the arrival of the Hunt brothers and the injuries he'd sustained. Raymond also noted that in October 1938, the title to the Pines had been transferred into his and Elizabeth's names. This, he said, had been her idea, in recognition of him putting £200 of his money and more than a decade's worth of labour into the property. Now, just four months later, Elizabeth was dead and Raymond was set to inherit. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. If police wanted a motive, this would do nicely. That said, the timing could have simply been an unfortunate coincidence. But it was another seemingly minor detail in Raymond's statement that puzzled police. While he could perfectly recall the names of people he'd served under and been employed by in South Africa, he couldn't remember the name of the ship that had brought him to Australia in 1919. Checking his South African background would be difficult and time-consuming. Confirming the details of his immigration would have been easy if the authorities knew the name of the vessel on which he'd arrived. Given that Raymond had worked on this ship for weeks, his inability to recall its name was inexplicable, and it seemed to tally with what gossiping locals had said about him always being vague to the point of secretive about his South African past. And what Raymond didn't tell police in his statement, but what they soon discovered, added greatly to their suspicions. He and Elizabeth also had a third-party insurance policy that would pay either spouse £1,000 if the other one died in a car accident. Acting on a tip-off, Police went to a waterhole at the Pines where they found a 22 caliber revolver that had been sunk with a piece of iron. They believed it had been fired recently and that it matched a weapon Raymond was known to have owned. Armed with all this evidence, police informed Raymond, who'd now moved to a hotel room in Albury across the border in New South Wales, that he would be expected to testify at an inquest into his wife's death 
which would be held at Walwa the following Monday, officiated by Deputy Coroner Hugh McCarg. It's not clear if Raymond knew that police had found the revolver, but it was common knowledge that they were expanding their investigation to include the death of Ellen Brennan and were even considering exhuming her body. After all, everything that was known about that 1928 tragedy, her running after the ducks, her slipping and falling, her shooting herself in the head, came from the only witness, Raymond. When the inquest into Elizabeth's death began at Walwa on Monday the 13th of March 1939, the police were present, but Raymond wasn't. Not that it seemed to matter because the police were actually about to ask for an adjournment of two weeks so they could complete their investigation. That included interviewing Raymond one more time. Privately, the police now believed they had enough for an arrest warrant. But detectives would never speak to their chief suspect again, nor would they put him in handcuffs. That's because while police were still at the inquest, the shocking news came through. Raymond White had been found on a remote roadside a few miles outside of Albury. He'd shot himself in the heart and been dead at least two days. Raymond's last movements were quickly established. On Friday the 10th of March, he went to see his solicitor in Wodonga. Then he crossed the border to Albury, where he bought the small bore shotgun he'd used to kill himself. Though Raymond's clothes were soaked by the weekend rain, the note found in one of his pockets was still legible. To the police, please don't blame anyone for this. I've lost my dear wife. I want to be with her and cannot live without her. It was signed R.C. White. The place Raymond had chosen to kill himself made people's ears prick up all over Australia. The old Howlong Road, now used mostly as a stock route, had been in the news on and off since the pyjama girl's body had been discovered there in 1934. This poor woman's battered and burned body had been found stuffed in a drain and police had gone to remarkable lengths to identify her. The pyjama girl, so named for the clothing she'd been found in, had been preserved in formalin and exhibited in Sydney in the hope that someone would recognise her. Despite this and numerous leads and theories, she remained unidentified and the case continued to mystify the Australian public. Now, a Sydney detective made his way south to investigate whether Raymond White, whose suicide surely implicated him in his wife's death and likely that of her sister, had also killed a girl who'd come to work at the Pines. After all, both Brennan sisters had died in drains. One had been consumed by fire. And Raymond had chosen to end his life just one mile from the lonely spot where the pyjama girl's body had been found. 
While the Sydney detective investigated a possible link to the pyjama girl, the Raymond White case yielded another sensation. Raymond White? He wasn't Raymond White at all. He hadn't been born in South Africa. All that stuff about dead parents serving in the Cape Mounted Rifles and working for a farmer in Ladysmith before sailing for Australia, it was fiction, embroidered with threads of truth. He had been born in 1895, so his age was right, but his name was Edgar Joseph Raymond Farrell. His hometown? That was Corowa, a New South Wales Murray River town just 100 miles west of where he'd reinvented himself and lived with Elizabeth. Raymond slash Edgar's parents' names had been Matthew and Mary, but he wasn't an only child and instead had five siblings. By 1914, aged 19, Edgar lived in Tasmania and it was there that he signed up for the Royal Australian Navy. Later that year, he suffered a minor wound while serving on a ship in the New Zealand Expeditionary Forces invasion of the German colony of Samoa. After that, Edgar became a crew member of the HMS Pioneer, which, despite being a decrepit and obsolete craft, saw more action in the Great War than any other Royal Australian Navy vessel. That included the sinking of the German cruiser Königsberg on a river in German East Africa in July 1915, which was as close as Edgar ever got to his alter ego's birthplace. The Corowa Free Press reported that on the 30th of November 1916, Edgar was fated as a hero by the gentlemen of his hometown in the council chambers. Presenting him with a wallet from the townspeople, the mayor said he'd known Edgar a long time and that he was a straightforward young man. At this time, and for the next three years, Edgar seemed to be just that. He remained in the Navy and had a very good record. After the end of the war, he was stationed at Jarvis Bay on the HMS Franklin, working as a petty officer instructor. Then, on the 8th of October 1919, this fine young naval officer simply disappeared, deserted. Notice of his crime appeared in police gazettes in all states, listing his name, last posting, description and a £6 reward for his apprehension. Of course, the notice didn't say why he'd absconded but it seemed that something had suddenly made Edgar flee because he left behind 40 pounds arrears in pay. That was about three months' salary. While on the run, Edgar visited his sisters and said he was going to travel the world. This was probably an attempt to throw any pursuers off his trail while he changed his name to Raymond Cyril White and disappeared into the countryside to work as a rabbit trapper. Thing was, after three years had passed, Edgar, now Raymond, would no longer have been prosecuted for his desertion. Yet he stayed hidden, which added to the theory that he was running from something back in 1919. 
When Raymond's father died in 1933, he left his absent son a legacy of £100. Evidence showed that Raymond knew about this windfall but chose not to break cover to claim it. Was that because doing so risked exposing his true identity to Elizabeth and she was worth a lot more than £100? Raymond's real identity also went some way to explaining why he was so reclusive. Living just a few hours' drive from where he'd been born and raised, there had to be the fear that someday someone would recognise him. And those detective stories he loved so much? According to one newspaper article, the police were preparing to present his obsession with them as evidence. Sydney's Daily Telegraph reported, They suggest that from the mystery novels he read, he planned the perfect crime. He was an authority on crime fiction and spent hours each night poring over detective literature. Police think the two accidents in which his wife and sister-in-law died were inspired by the ingenious criminals with whom he associated vicariously each night. With Raymond's death, the inquest into Elizabeth's death was now to be resumed in two weeks. In the meantime, the Sydney detective had concluded there was no link between Raymond White and the Pyjama Girl. Raymond and Elizabeth had employed a girl around the time of the Pyjama Girl's discovery, but this woman was alive and well and had actually already been interviewed by police investigating Elizabeth's death. It'd be another five years before the Pyjama Girl was identified as Linda Agostini and her husband Tony was found guilty of her manslaughter. On Monday the 27th of March, two weeks after Raymond White's body was found, more than 100 people packed into Walworth's public hall for the resumption of the inquest into the death of Elizabeth White. Police and witnesses had travelled hundreds of miles to be there. Proceedings were to commence at 11am, but Deputy Coroner Hugh McCarg wasn't in the hall. Instead, he was in serious conference with the police's legal advisor and other lawyers. Then came the bombshell. Deputy Coroner McCarg had just been told that Raymond White's will had appointed him as sole executor of his estate. Even more bizarrely, Raymond White's solicitor, now representing his interests in court, was Mr J.C.B. Mackenzie McCarg, the son of the deputy coroner. While the will directed that most of Raymond's estate be given to various Catholic charities, it also provided £200 for Deputy Coroner McHarg. Entering the hall, McHarg sat at the inquest table and told those gathered that he refused to continue in his role in this case. With no one to officiate, the inquest had to be postponed again, causing huge inconvenience for police and witnesses who'd come from so far and wide. This incredible situation, with its unresolvable conflict of interests, didn't come in for nearly enough scrutiny. Raymond White had made his will three days after his wife had died. By then, he knew Deputy Coroner McHarg was sitting in judgment at the inquest, yet 
he named him executor. The will was lodged with his son. Did McHarg Jr. know its contents? That's unclear, but it seems very likely. If this was the case, why didn't he dissuade his client from such a course of action? Further, legal process is that the executor is notified as soon as possible after a person dies, meaning the younger McHarg had almost two weeks to notify his father that he was executor. So why did he apparently leave it until the last moment? Again, there was no explanation. Whatever the McHarg's motives, the result was that Raymond White had reached out from beyond the grave to frustrate the law's pursuit of the truth. On the 6th of May, 1939, Elizabeth White's coffin was dug out of the earth at Walworth Cemetery so that her charred remains could be examined by the Victorian government's pathologist. On the 24th of May, the inquest into her death resumed. Finally, the truth about the car accident might be known. William Corbett, who'd picnicked with the Whites on the day Elizabeth died, said the couple had appeared on good terms. But his nine-year-old daughter Mary testified that she'd seen a bottle in the back of Raymond's car that was full of fluid that looked like water. Yet the label read, Australian wine. That the police called her as a witness with this testimony was to imply Raymond had used some sort of accelerant, like kerosene. Albert Hunt, who'd helped try to rescue Elizabeth, testified that he'd heard someone calling for help and when he'd arrived, he'd seen Raymond on the embankment. They'd tried to get Elizabeth out by pulling her arm. Then his brother arrived. By this time, Raymond was hysterical and needed to be carried away. Albert Hunt also said he'd seen the sports coat on the embankment and seen blood on Raymond's arm, but it hadn't seemed fresh. He further testified that Raymond at the time hadn't said anything about sheep on the side of the road. Albert's brother Francis said he'd been awakened by the sound of the accident. When he got to the crash site, he said Elizabeth was trapped beneath a burning seat cushion. The fire, he said, was fiercest near the dashboard. Come and help me lift the car, Francis said he'd call to his brother. That's when Raymond had said, I'm done, had fallen down and had needed to be carried away. Another Hunt brother, John, told the inquest he'd taken Raymond back to the Pines after he was discharged from hospital. He said Raymond told him the police had treated him all right and said, Things are all right as long as I can get someone to say my wife and I were on good terms. It was a strange thing to say, especially as the other Hunt brothers, along with Mr Corbett, actually had testified that Elizabeth and Raymond did seem to get on well and didn't argue. Even stranger was that as soon as he got home, Raymond asked John Hunt to burn some of his wife's clothes because they reminded him of the accident. This might have been meant to provide cover for him to then burn his own incriminating clothes out of grief. 
At the inquest, Elizabeth and Raymond's bank manager said that after her death, Raymond had come to him asking for an urgent loan of £200 to cover travel and legal expenses. The manager had put him off until Raymond's legal position was clearer, but eventually relented and loaned him £30, money he used to buy the shotgun. Raymond's insurance agent confirmed that his car policy had included £1,000 to be paid if either spouse died in an auto accident. A man who briefly worked as a farm manager at the Pines after Elizabeth's death testified that because of something Raymond had said, he'd come to suspect he'd hidden something in a paddock. Then he said he'd seen what he thought was a gun barrel sticking out of a waterhole and he'd called the police and been present when they'd retrieved the 22 caliber revolver. Sifting the dirt from the crash site, police had found the remains of two 22 caliber bullets and one had blood on it. But they were unable to prove that the gun they'd found had been fired recently. The farm manager witness also testified that he'd discussed criminal investigation with Raymond in October 1938. This is how the man recalled that conversation. He said he thought detectives were not very clever. They never catch any of these men who do these jobs. The coroner asked the police lawyer how this was relevant. The lawyer said, We say that the whole scheme was planned in October. Insurance, everything. But the most damning testimony came from the government's analyst who'd examined the wreck and who now explained how the fire had been intense enough to all but cremate Elizabeth White. He concluded that the car's petrol feed pipe had been broken and that it was impossible for it to have been broken in the accident. This broken pipe, which was releasing petrol vapour, had been aimed at the back of Mrs White's front passenger seat. Then it had been deliberately ignited and acted like a high-powered blowtorch. The analyst concluded that only a man with engineering understanding would have been able to repurpose the car's feed pipe this way. Knowledge that Raymond White had from his days as engine room petty officer Edgar Farrell. And if Raymond the crime buff had been following the Pajama Girl case, which given it had happened in his area seems likely, he would have known that fire could do away with much evidence. And that was the case with Elizabeth. The government pathologist, having examined her exhumed body, testified that he'd found no trace of bullet or knife wounds in what remained of her bones. If Raymond White had, as the police believed, shot and or stabbed his wife, the fire had left no trace of the fatal injuries. The government pathologist did say that the amount of blood found on the sports coat was consistent with that from a woman who'd fallen against a man after her throat had been cut. But only able to speak to the evidence, the pathologist told the coroner he wasn't prepared to say how Elizabeth White had died. In his own defence, Raymond White got to speak from the grave when his police statement was tendered in court. 
The coroner said he didn't believe Raymond White's story for a moment. But he also had harsh words for the police who'd initially attended the crash scene. By not removing Elizabeth White's body from the burning car as soon as possible, they'd most likely allowed crucial evidence to be destroyed. Police, medical men, scientists and witnesses, they'd all painted a compelling circumstantial portrait of Raymond White's guilt. Even so, the coroner had no choice but to record an open finding. The mystery would endure. Was Raymond White just a poor man who'd wanted to put his past behind him only to end up killing himself out of grief because he'd been unable to save the woman he loved? Or was Raymond White a patient man who coldly and callously killed two women so he could inherit a valuable property only to then cheat the hangman when he realised the cops were unravelling his supposedly perfect crime? As a writer for Melbourne's Herald would put it more than a decade later, if the central figure of this story did not murder at least one woman before he committed suicide, he left behind the greatest weight of coincidence and accusing circumstantial evidence known in Victorian police history. I'm Michael Adams and this has been the final episode in this season of Forgotten Australia. The show will be back in the not-too-distant future and between now and then I'll be releasing the occasional bonus episode telling shorter stories that I've come across during my research. I'd love it if you could show your support by leaving a review or rating at iTunes and if you want to know more about this or any other Forgotten Australia story, head to the website ForgottenAustralia.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Forgotten Oz Podcast. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.